In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, wanted to start off the show... Uh, there's kind of a series that I'm starting mostly within my head, but about different lessons and things I've learned throughout life, professionally, personally, um, calling it lessons I'm learning. Um, and so different ideas, thoughts that have come to me over the years of doing the show, working with clients. And so every so often I'll share some of those um, with you on, on the air. So one that recently came to my mind, um, and the title for this that, that I came up with is I... I could write better stories in my sleep. And so that's sometimes we, we say that to say we can do something easily. So someone does something, we say, oh, I can do that in my sleep or I could do a better job in my sleep. And how this came to my mind is I had a dream that I don't actually remember the details of it now, but it was really interesting. I remember when I woke up, it was um, very deep and twisted in interesting ways and complex. And I wondered if I had to write a story while I was awake, would I come up with something as interesting as I did in my dream, in my sleep? Um, but really, I have the same brain. Now, some people might think that when you dream, you um, go into some other realm or world, or you're tapping into something that isn't you. So I have to uh, deviate from that, or if you believe that, I can't really um, argue against it. But as far as my understanding of it, I think when we dream, it's within our brain. Unconscious things are, are going on, associations are being made. So it is that same brain you have when you are awake. It might be sl- uh, functioning slightly differently, but it's that same brain. So if my brain, if I'm able to come up with this story in my sleep, why can't I come up with it when I'm awake? Or why would that seem difficult to do? And so when we are asleep, there are some parts of our brain that are probably more offline or not as active. For example, parts of the prefrontal cortex or what we might think of as the judging part of our brain, which can be good to help determine things, make decisions, but also can judge good and bad. That part of our brain is likely more off or down. And so because of that, then the unconscious is free to roam a bit more. And so there is that notion when people are having brainstorming meetings, they say there are no bad ideas, even though they don't actually mean that. But what we're trying to say is don't say no to any idea, just say it, share it, let's see if it has any value to us. And so when we sleep, we kind of have that going on. But even if we look at it another way, um, I think most people, even with so many clients, I've heard their dreams. And they might not be people who themselves think, oh, I'm creative or I could write a creative story, but they have these really interesting dreams that might be very, very layered and complex. And sometimes there's a twist. Sometimes it's connected to something else. 
that takes some time to uncover and reveal. And it's kind of amazing. Wow, you had a, a dream or you came up with this story that connected different pieces, had a twist in there somewhere. That sounds amazing. But if I then told them, write me a story like that right now, they probably would think, oh, I can't. I don't know how to write stories or I don't know how to come up with a, you know, a screenplay for a movie. I wouldn't be able to do that. But what this tells me is that we are all much more capable and much more creative than we realize that we, than we even give ourselves the chance to be, or that our judgmental type of part of our mind comes in and doesn't even let the ideas start to see what they can become. Because again, this is that same brain that's when you're asleep comes up with this amazing story. How come you can't come up with that story when you're awake? It's clearly to me because we're not letting it happen. Just like, let's say, a young kid likes to dance, but they know their dad or mom doesn't want them to dance. The child could dance, but they're not allowed to express that. And so they sit in the corner and don't move, and we can't even see that they can dance. And our brain has all these abilities too. And I don't mean this, you know, sometimes I've seen this, uh, I heard it since I was younger. Oh, you know, we only use 10% of our brain, I would always hear this. Imagine if we use the other 90%. And there really is no um, validity to that or really value in that statement. Now, possibly, let's say if you look at the brain and only some parts of it are active at any given time. Well, yeah, that's just like if you are picking up a cup, the rest of your body might not be active, but it doesn't mean you need to use all your muscles to lift that cup and that would be better somehow. It's just different functions might utilize different things. So it's not in the sense of, oh, we're not using enough of our brain in that way of like this overall functioning. But I do think there's ways that we don't allow ourselves to try things, to come up with something. And and there's a lot of authors who've written on creativity who have pointed to this fact that when you are creating, you have to turn off that judgmental part to allow for things to happen. Okay, what comes up in your mind? What connections do you make? trying something new, trying something different, what comes to your mind if you just let it flow? And don't worry if the ideas are good or bad yet. Um, often I've seen it that they say, well, later on, you might have to go evaluate it to, to look at it. That judgmental side might be good to come in and see what is good and how could it be shaped before you release it, let's say, to the public. But initially, we need to have this space to just freely roam and to play to see what comes about. And so again, that notion of there are no bad ideas, you need to have some of that. And it doesn't mean all the ideas will be good because I'm saying let yourself roam free, just like not all of your dreams are interesting. If we think back to what started this uh, conversation altogether, yeah, a lot of your dreams are like, yeah, this happened. It was kind of weird or maybe it was scary for a moment, but it wasn't interesting or let's say you think of it as very creative, but it was just there. So doesn't mean that if we allow ourselves, all the ideas will be good. And actually what we're trying to let ourselves do is allow ourselves to have bad ideas. Because really, if you never come up with a bad idea, that means you really haven't pushed yourself to see what your brain can create or what you can come up with. And so this is brains and dreams and stories. And also this is another indication of how much as humans we create narratives and we create a story. When I was talking about the book, The Self-Delusion, a few weeks ago by Gregory Burns, uh, in that book, he was talking about how this sense of ourself, there's a narrative, like a story we have about who we are, who am I, 
in this story, in the world, and how I see myself, it's much more a story than just some basis of facts because you can't remember everything that's happened to you and you will always remember it with some type of perspective or some type of um, ideas about it. So we could keep this in mind too, that we are storytellers. We try to make sense of something. It's even related to how we look at causality. If something happened and then something happens after, it had to have been caused by that. There's a way it has to make sense for us. So in the storytelling realm, we can see this very clearly that if we dream something, it means that we can create something in another way. But of course, this would apply to other types of art and creativity as well. Whether it's painting, singing, poetry, whatever it might be, we know that we can come up with much more than we allow ourselves. And that's the key word. It's because we don't allow ourselves to be creative. So it is another one of those, sometimes it's cheesy to say we're all creative or we're more creative than we realize. But I totally think that's true, that if we allowed ourselves, and of course, this also means like allowing as a uh, family, as a culture, as a society for people to explore and come up with ideas and are less judgmental about what comes up to them, that if it is even a, an idea, it doesn't mean we have to say every idea is good, but that it's okay to have bad ideas or it's okay to say something silly. Oh yeah, that silly thing was stupid, but sometimes something that seems silly actually turned out to be very profound or people can relate to it in some way. But I, I really do believe that all of us are much more creative than we give ourselves the space to express. So next time you have a dream and if it's interesting or makes you think about things, it could be good to, to think about how could I have written that story when I was awake? Would I be able to create something that even bizarre or that connected or that complex if I was awake and hopefully you'll recognize that you can and will you then give yourself that space to be more creative in these ways even writing down your dreams can be a good thing of remembering what happened in them but it could also be a way of encouraging you to tap into some of that creativity to express ideas express things in a way that you possibly didn't think that you could so it's strange to think that you can do something better in your sleep than you can when you're awake. But for most of us, we can write better stories when we're sleeping in our dreams than when we can if we're asked to try to force the story out. And so that's another aspect of it. If you try to force it out, it won't come out. You have to allow that space for that creativity to come out to then write that story. So uh, that was a, another one of these lessons that I'll, I'll probably have a few more on today's show as well. But I could write better stories in my sleep. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So another um, type of lesson that I've learned or thought a lot about is related to economics and economic thinking and how that impacts the decisions we make individually but also as a society and some issues I have with some types of economic thinking or the influences that it's maybe that it's had on us. So one thing I've noticed when you look at economic thinking often, especially traditional thinking before we pay more attention to behavioral economics, is that money and having more money always makes a decision rational, almost. That might be extreme, but to a degree that if you did something and you end up with more money, 
you made the right decision and that was the right thing to do. But if you do something and you have with more money, you were irrational, illogical. And I've thought about this often, but recently I was listening to a podcast with economists and financial advisors and different people giving advice or giving their opinions on different things. Actually, it was basically looking at do economists give better financial advice or do the kind of the popular people that give that write books and things, do they give better financial advice? And so when hearing their conversation, what I found interesting was at times they would say, well, they're, they're doing this and it's irrational. And it was just assumed that irrational meant they would end up with less money or financially they would end up with less money uh, rather than the rational thing would be to have more money. And it, it puzzled me or it strikes me as odd because if the point of life or the point of what we're doing or even the point of what we do with our money is to experience the best life, to have this overall sense of happiness and well-being, then how can we just boil it down to when do we have the most money that makes the best decision or that's the right thing to do. Um, one issue I think that comes into play here, and this happens in a lot of research, is something we can call a quantification bias. And so by that quantification, I mean things that we can put into a number. Now in psychology, we try to do this with everything. We give happiness scores, depression scores, different ratings, things that we try to give to take things like a subjective experience of happiness or depression and get a number for it so that we can do certain types of research and certain types of statistics on it. But other things lend themselves to being quantified much more clearly, or they are just quantified by how they are, you could say by their nature. So money is quantified. It's how much you have. You have 100 or you have 110, and it's very much clear what we're dealing with. Even if we try to quantify happiness, oh, you went from a four to a five, obviously we can say, okay, five is more than four, but what that really looks like and means and that value is a lot harder for us to ascertain and understand. And so that makes it difficult to understand. I also think this quantification bias leads to some challenges when people try to do research where they do put everything into numbers and at times we lose something in that process. And so it becomes challenging because of course we should study happiness. We have to study these things, depression, anxiety, whatever uh, the subjective experience is, but there's a lot of uh, complications and, and complexities that come up. But I think that because something like money gets quantified so clearly that if you end up with 100, that's worse than ending up with 110, and there's no disputing that part of it, we can overweight that. We can put too much value on the things that we can quantify. Because if you tell me, you know, I'm making less money, but I'm happier, uh, that's hard for me to comprehend. But if you're saying I'm making more money now, I don't know if I'm happier or not. I'm like, okay, well, you made a good decision because you're making more money and I can quantify that. But I think this is unfortunate because it takes away from really what is this all about? And it should be all about what the person's experience is, their life, not if they ended up with more money. Um, it reminds me of the same, more in a macro scale, we see with um, economies where if they have more money, but people might be more unhappy or the wealth inequality has gotten bigger and more people are suffering, we still think, oh, the economy is doing well because GDP went up. And we look at some quantifiable number to try to say that people are doing better and not realizing that the point of the economy is to serve us, not for, the, for us to serve the economy. But sometimes we 
get that mixed up and we're just focused on, okay, if the economy is good because we think that means people are doing better, we might even sacrifice how people are doing to keep the, the economy okay or to keep the numbers in a way that makes it seem like we're doing okay. So this quantification bias, um, it's something to be aware of because it, it happens all the time because we just see a number and it makes us think it has to mean something or it has more value than something we can't put a number on. And so when we're making financial decisions, I've seen this in in research that they do, that they at times don't factor in the way the person feels. So they say like, okay, you're playing a game where you have to split money up between you and another person, and one person has all the power, and there's some kind of like this, uh, I don't know if this one's part of like the prisoner's dilemma, or, or it's part of game theory, I think. So it's like, how much money should you give so the other person will accept it, and then, you know, if they don't accept it, you get neither. So let's say if I get $10, I can either give you five and five, or I can take all 10 for myself or take nine for myself and give you one. But if you reject the offer, neither of us get anything. And so, so sometimes they'll say, well, it's irrational for the recipient to say no to anything. Because even if you're getting $1, if you say no to it, you get $0. So you should always take $1. And so it becomes, well, it's the feeling of it being unfair makes you say no. And that's irrational because if it's that feeling, but this is real money, you're, you're trading something almost fake or doesn't matter for something that's very real. Again, we can quantify it, but shouldn't that also have value? Um, now, additionally, even here, there's more to it than that, because if you just focus on this one interaction, yes, you'll end up with $1.00. Um, whereas if you say no, you end up with zero. But if this person is someone you're going to repeatedly interact with, you could be setting a precedent that has an impact on your life. And our brains are wired to, to think in that way, which sometimes does cost us. And I'll get into how the feelings are not the whole thing either. They're not the ultimate truth. But that could be something very real, that if you're repeatedly interacting with this person, of course you want to be aware if they're always taking 90% and giving you 10%, you have to show them that that's not going to be okay. So there's more interactions in this one potentially. Not only that, in the same realm of repeated interactions, other people can see you. So there's reputation effects potentially. If they see that you're someone who will take 10% and will just give in to it, they can feel like they can also take advantage of you in this way. So it can cost you in the long run, even cost you financially outside of the feeling part of it, which they're interrelated, but outside of that. So there's a way that it's maybe not even the best financial decision for you because, well, you have to think in other ways, not just think of that specific interaction. So even the feelings might be giving you some information. This doesn't feel right. It doesn't just mean it doesn't feel right. Oh, your feelings are making you feel something. Take the money. The feeling might be making you realize something doesn't feel fair. And there's a reason why that feeling might exist and have some value for me to, to keep in mind. Or they'll do studies where they say, okay, you can either have $100 now or $150 at this point in time at, you know, whatever it is. And then they say, if you, you know, a lot of times the feeling is if you don't take them the money in the future, you're being, you know, you're giving into immediate gratification. You're making the less rational choice that $100 becoming 150 in two weeks or whatever it is, that's worth more money, or if you invested it somehow, it wouldn't become $150 or whatever. However, they calculate that, that you should make this decision or you shouldn't, that you should also always go for that 
more money later on. But there's a way that when we look at some of these economic questions and we ask people, they're asked in this way as if it's happening in a vacuum or in some separate universe. Because there's also things that come into play that if someone says, hey, I'm going to you know, either give you $100 now or $150 at some other point or $200, there's no guarantee of that thing happening. The way the research is presented is as if it's guaranteed. And even someone can tell you we're guaranteeing it to you, but of course, doesn't mean that that's actually going to happen or the person is telling the truth. And of course, this could bring up some things of trusting and being paranoid or being suspicious. But these are very real things in the real world. You can't say that we're telling you it's $200. So how much do you value the money versus now versus a week from now or a month from now? There's actually something very real. There are lots of different factors that come into play. And even I think there's been some research looking at people who have experienced more challenges in their life and how they might view these things or if people have lied to them more or they've dealt with more um, unethical type of behaviors. Maybe it could be understandable that they don't think they should just trust you to say you're going to give them this much money at whatever point. So there's lots of research that looks at economic decision-making, financial decision-making. And I think it actually is very important, valuable, and helps us understand humans, human psychology, human decision-making, and also how we can make things better for people. So the research itself overall, I think, is a good thing to be looking at, uh, of course. But what I at times have a trouble with is that it makes it seem that making the decision that ends up with the most money is always a rational decision. And if you end up with less money, you made an irrational decision. You gave in to something that was wrong. Some feeling made you go the wrong way and you are wrong. And so that's the part that I take issue with, that the feeling, even if you do something where, okay, you, if they say, oh, it's better for you to take $9 and make the other person take one from the, the giver's side, but there's a feeling that person might have of what kind of, of a person am I? Who am I? And of course, their reputation affects and things as well. But how do they feel that has value? And how do we compare that to the, the money amount? It is very complicated. But again, with the quantification bias, we just tend to think, OK, well, it's more money. That must be the right decision. I don't know the feeling parts. I can't really tell you or it's not even really considered. Now, the other side of this that I do think is important is not to say, OK, the feeling matters the most either. Of course not. And even not that the feeling is a static thing that doesn't change. Sometimes actually through these explorations, we might notice certain patterns. It seems like people don't feel secure when making this type of a decision or people tend to make this type of a error. Let's try to understand it and possibly even inform them. So it looks like when we you know, tell you something is 10% less, you act this way. But if we say 20% less, you act this way. And we seem to see this tendency so you might notice that feeling now, but the feeling can change. You can recognize, oh, okay, yeah, I feel what I'm feeling. And I think that's what it's trying to tell me is that this is actually very risky, but now I can see that it actually isn't. So I can override that feeling or I can couple that feeling with the logical thinking to then come to this conclusion to make this decision. So our feelings are data, but not dictators. So they are data, they are information, but it doesn't mean we just act on them without thinking either. So I'm not, of course, saying that just listen to your feelings and make your decisions financially purely on the feeling side of it. What I'm saying is that we sometimes give such a value, we overvalue the money and we undermine how you will feel. You know, And so people, for example, will say, okay, I have a new job offer, 
but it's an hour away, but look, I'm making 20% more. And so even if I factor in the cost of commuting, I'm going to end up with, you know, 15% more income every year. I have to take that. But then when we look at how much an hour commute affects you physically and emotionally, well, that's a big deal too. But often because we just look at the things that we quantify easily, we think, well, if I'm making more money, I have to go do that thing. And I would be irrational not to take that job or I have a rationale or a way of explaining why I made the decision, even if it's making me feel more unhappy or it's taking me away from my family two extra hours every single day, day after day, week after week, somehow I can still explain, well, it's more money. And so that's the right thing. And these things become very complicated to understand or research because I get it. How do you then quantify that utility or quantify what is lost by being away from your family? And these things are not something that we can give a definitive answer to. And not only that, they might try to quantify it in some way, but each person is going to be different. And then we look at each person within their life, it might be different at different times. It's very complex. So I can't speak to say this is the answer and this is the value of the feelings. I just think it's very important for us to be aware of this when we are researching these types of things. But then personally, when we look at these types of decisions, that your feelings have a lot of value and importance in this or Really, they have the ultimate value in the sense that how you feel overall and your experience is going to be important. And so understanding what you're going through emotionally or what you're feeling about the decisions that you make does have some value. So some people might feel like if I have debt, that makes me get anxious. And that itself has value. But I would want you to explore that. Where is that coming from? Is there also a sense of in your family, there was a lot of instability or there was something going on or you hate the feeling of feeling you owe someone. You're more used to being the one that's giving more than you're getting. So when you know you owe, even if it's an institution and not some individual, it makes you feel so uncomfortable that you can't tolerate that. Maybe you can try to understand that better and get to a better place where then you find uh, a decision that you can make where you actually feel good about it. And it does have different outcomes for you than the original decision. So to me, as always, it's about coupling and blending the emotional and the logical thinking about it in different ways. But I really take issue to the notion that if something makes you end up with less money, it's irrational. And I heard several of the speakers on this podcast and the way it was just discussed made it seem that that was basically um, the whole truth, that if something made them less money, yeah, I know it's not rational, but I made this decision. And what they were really saying was like, I know financially I end up with less or it might not be the best decision based on the the theories of how things play out, uh, but this is the decision I made. And I felt that that way of thinking about it, we can almost say uh, to kind of poke at it is irrational itself, to think that just the money is the part that makes the decision rational, irrational. To me, that's irrational, or I don't agree with that. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Dr. Fadi Solakwi. Uh, thank you for taking my call and then giving me on the sure, air. Sure, thanks for calling. Um, sure. Uh, actually, um, I am having uh, some psychotic experiences uh, starting uh, from about four years ago. I am currently 46 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
for the it was for the first time that I started hearing voices uh, and uh, I couldn't believe that the, this is not a real experience and uh, later I uh, I saw a doctor and uh, they gave me some antipsychotic meds uh, mm -hmm. that it is stopped it okay. stopped and uh, it was about uh, less than a year that I used those uh, pills and uh, that stopped actually it uh, affected my period my period also stopped uh, because of that after uh, stopping taking the pills after about less than a year again my period uh, come on normal situation as okay. it was before and if I may if I may ask when you what were you what was that experience like what were you hearing um, at I that was, time I was hearing the voices of the people that I knew mm -hmm. and also the people that I didn't know. Okay. Uh, that they were telling me, uh, how are you doing, what are you doing, uh, or giving me some uh, news about uh, things that are happening around them or in the world. Mm. It was giving me this uh, belief that I know a lot of stuff and uh, I, I can tell them their um, their secrets. Uh, it, it was the experience was this. I, I could see. believe that I can give them. This so you you thought that you were hearing them like, but did you were you thinking that they're somehow transmitting it to you to your brain, or were you thinking they're actually talking out loud? Yes, I could hearing directly out loud. I I I could hearing the voices that were talking out loud. Okay. Uh, to me and also uh, from those people, mm -hmm. but also I was able to uh, say their news and I was able to uh, say very long poems, very very meaningful poems. And mm. during the night when I was. Asleep, I was uh, poeming, and also when I got out, uh, they were all in Farsi, and mm. out loud I could read them uh, by my language. But in, in that, when I was uh, saying them, I wasn't hearing the voices. I was just able to say the poem, okay. tell the poem, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and. Um, so then you took. I, I know. I, I, so you said you took the medication for about a year, but then when you you stopped taking them. So I guess this was about three years ago. You stopped taking the medication. About four years. Yes. Okay. About mm -hmm. yes. Uh, about yes, three years. It's correct. After I stopped. Mm -hmm. And and um, after three years, uh, it took time for three years that nothing happened to me. Everything was good and I, on the right track without any medici medication. Um, and after that, just recently, about six months ago or so, uh, again, uh, I started hearing uh, voices and this time they were uh, very highly famous people um, that they were talking to me like the actors, actresses they were talking to me and um, I was able to talk to them um, and uh, this time again I couldn't believe that this is not real and uh, it took time that I came to myself to feel that 
this is anti this is psychotic experiences mm. not a real experience mm-hmm. um, so um i uh, in that time i wasn't in in the us i was in uh, iran mm-hmm. and um the family took me to a, a center to a, a psychiatric uh-huh. center and um, we went there uh, I was um, the, the doctor never saw me never talked to me just they gave me a bed and they started giving me meds hmm. without talking to me a word after a couple of sessions the doctor came and said hi how are you uh, how are you doing and the the side effect of the uh, pills was so severe that uh, I could, uh, I, I had lost uh, all uh, my control over voluntary urination, hmm. uh, number one, and um, also um, I couldn't control the. Uh, mouth uh, my mouth and that uh, the the watery mouth i mean mm-hmm. uh, and also um, so much uh, depressing mm. was those those time those days very much so and uh, i was also still talking to myself and talking to the world around me uh, as part of the psychotic experiences. Gradually, I came to myself that this is psychotic experience and it is nothing is really around me that is talking to me. Hmm. Just the people who I see are on my side. Um, so, um, time passed and uh, after about uh, after a month and a couple of weeks, less than a month and a half, um, I got out of that uh, center, and uh, my family actually was very much uh, uh, taking care of my meds, and they were very much afraid of me not uh, taking my pills. Um, and I started dealing uh, up with the side effect of the pills. Uh, it was, uh, and uh, I can, t- if you want, I can tell you the name of the pills. You, but, uh, it's, it, I mean, that you can, um, you know, one thing, the antipsychotic medications can have a lot of really bad side effects, almost all of them, and, and then, of course, each person might respond to them differently. Um, since I'm, you know, talking now, I'll add a few more thoughts about what you've gone through, um, you know, you have this these experiences that it seems like there's a while while you're in it where you, it feels very real, and then you start to come out of it realizing it's it's not real or you're not hearing hearing these voices. Um, but you know, this way we talk about psychosis like this very clear thing, and it can be in some ways when it gets to some extreme levels, but. There's a blurry line there. Even we all hear voices in a way. Usually we can just differentiate that, oh, that's my voice or I'm thinking in my yeah. head. But then sometimes we we can lose that or even we might imagine what other people are, are thinking. So, um, you know, there's a lot of 
psychologists, psychiatrists, yeah. really when they think about psychosis and different things, sometimes we think of it, oh, some people are really you know, sick and going through something and everyone else is okay, but it, it, the line is much more blurry than that. And also this experience you had of, of, of this poetry coming to you, I don't know if you wrote any of it down or what it, it, it looks like or appears to you, but there seems to be something going on where you're at times close to something um, where you feel okay, but maybe you get to a point where then it's not okay. But another issue is how you're being treated. You know, you said when you were in Iran, the way they treated you as far as the psychiatric center was to just give you medication before they they saw you. And this is unfortunately often how we treat psychiatric illnesses or experiences where we just look at the person as a disease or a symptom and just throw some medication at them and then they get better rather than seeing the individual as a whole person, which is much more complex yeah. than just, okay, they have this symptom, give them a pill, the symptom goes away and they're okay. You're much more than that. And so um, whatever treatment you do get, if you get any, it'll be very important that you create a relationship with the psychiatrist that you are working with, that they make you feel like they understand you, they see what you're going through. Of course, the side effects sometimes can be so horrible that people that are on these kinds of medications yeah. stop because of those side effects. But then sometimes other ones might have less side effects, of course, if you change the doses. I'm not a psychiatrist to speak on that, but from just seeing what people go through, that can also be helpful because, well, I do want to ask you, what do you think you would like to achieve? Do you want to get to a point where you don't have these psychotic episodes anymore, which I think would be understandable? Um, and were there any indications of what was going on? Because you said your first psychotic experience was at 42. Did they give you any understanding of what possibly led to it if it was just something you never had sometimes psychotic experiences can the first episode can be later in women than in men but um, 42 would be you know later but still doesn't mean it couldn't have been that but is there any did they give you any explanation as to what might have been going on for you no no not okay. really they didn't and the problem that i experienced is that they give me a list of meds one of them also even is an injection all of them all together is seven meds hmm. uh, and uh, 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 at night i started having so much pain in the back of my uh, lower lower back i, I mean mm -hmm. in that area and also in my um, feet I, I we say in farsi like your foot fell asleep, that feeling like pins and needles and they fall asleep? Not falling okay. asleep, kind of not tingling, it's kind of uh, a weakness. It's kind of, um, I don't know any word for that. Okay. It's kind of um, so much. Uh, um, it's, it's very problematic. I cannot speak yeah. actually. Well, I, I yeah. Should, uh, and by the way, are you still in Iran or you are no longer there? No, no I am not there at okay. this time, but I am going there again. Okay. Well, I mean, and the medication you got prescribed, that was from a doctor in Iran or that's where you are now? No, it was from a doctor in Iran, but... And I, uh, since I am here, I have been trying to make an appointment with somebody here 
and eventually they gave me an appointment a day before my traveling. Uh, okay. uh, I am having soon an appointment. What is your advice? What, what do you think about my situation? Uh, you know, doctor, in the, in the day when I wake up, I cannot sit still at, at all. Mm. I cannot sit upright and still all the time and every minute I have to um, just move, just uh, yeah. sit, uh, stand up, sit. Stand up, yeah. So you're feeling restless. Do you do you feel like yeah. that's from the medication, or you think that's how you are or were doing before? Honestly, I didn't have any of these things before. Yeah. Any of these things before, and I believe it is. I believe. I believe it is all about meds. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's hard to say with these things. Like I was saying before, even about cause and effect, we we have to make a story to make sense. But we don't really know, especially when we're looking at one person, what they're going through. It could be if you're saying you never had these experiences, now they have you on seven. Did you say you're on seven medications right now? Yes. That's That seems very surprising. I don't know. what was. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else other than for the psychotic experiences that they gave you medication for? Yes. Uh, only resperidone. But but I mean, was there are any of the medications for anything else, or they're all for the psychotic? No, all of them all are together. It's for this. Uh, uh, the the rest of them, I can give you the name of others. You like can, yeah. Pronolol or okay. uh, others. All are. Uh, I was reading them. For example, it says it's a beta blocker, and that. Uh, and uh, when I talked to a doctor here. That was my primary care, and he said, uh, please stop all of them, Uh, and uh, when I stopped, uh, I started having very bad experience of, uh, not psychotic at all, experience of uh, restlessness, and I talked to him, I asked for a psychiatrist, someone who can help. He said, wow, uh, it is not a problem. It's just uh, the side effect of propranolol. You can uh, you you can take restart that, but I stop the rest because I want to see how you are and also uh, until uh, because he wanted to write a, a order a blood work for me. Also, he said that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I'll say, I'm a, a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. And so to tell you which medication to take or not take, I wouldn't do. Um, but I did, you know, I got, I was surprised when you said seven medications just for psychosis is, seems like a lot. And I'm glad you might see someone else. You know, beta blockers can be for things like anxiety type of symptoms, blocking the physical manifestations of anxiety so i don't know if when you stopped taking that maybe that made you restless because it was giving you some you know, it, it is that i yeah. experienced tremors and i experienced this restlessness and the, yeah the tremors again that's something that you never experienced before the medication yes uh, yeah. i started the experience after that yeah after yeah and, and there are that is one of the potential side effects for some antipsychotics i don't know if any of the ones you had things like tardive dyskinesia and different experiences that people have that can be very difficult. Even some of them are things like tremors or tics or certain protrusions of the tongue or movements that people 
can can experience um, from from uh, especially long term use, but from the use of antipsychotics. So we are at a commercial break, but I want us to continue a bit. As I mentioned, giving you medical advice or medicinal advice of what to take or not to take, I, I won't be able to do. But I do want to allow us to continue the conversation a little bit more thank before you. we wrap up. So we're going to put you on hold and we'll talk after the break, okay? Oh, thank you. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Hello, yes, okay. I am here. All right. So uh, before the break, you shared about what you've been going through, having some psychotic type of uh, experiences that began, I think, around age 42, four, year, uh, four years ago, um, hearing voices, feeling like you can get some news and know things that other people didn't or somehow had those insights. Um, but we were talking about recently the medications you're on and the experience you've you've had which yeah it does seem like as i mentioned the seven medications sounds like a lot i'm glad you're getting evaluated again i know the timing yeah. is not great that you're saying that appointment is the day before you leave um but i do think that's a a good idea to do that if you can and now and you haven't had the psychotic um anything where you're hearing voices or any of those experiences lately no, that's no. Okay, you haven't had those. Okay, um, and so when you, you know you're looking, I know you are looking for answers because what you're going through has been difficult, and also the treatment has been having its own set of problems that it's giving you. What do you think, as far as you said you wanted to know my advice or what I was thinking? What what do you what is it that I could help you with, or I might be able to give Actually, you some help? Actually, uh, doctor, I have two questions. Sure. One is that. What is this uh, experience? What mm. is this? What is the diagnosis? Well, uh, yeah, okay. And the second question is that how to with uh, um, sorry, you're side breaking. You're breaking up. Sorry. So it was the second question: how to deal with the side effects? Yes. Okay. How to deal with the side effects? Well, I mean. Uh, since you mentioned that second one, and, and not that it's easier, but I mean, how to deal with them, the first thing is, should you even have to have them? And that's why I think you want to get these evaluations. And also when you work with a psychiatrist in general, they want to really see how is the person responding to the medications because people can respond so differently and then to possibly adjust, change, modify the treatment um, because sometimes the side effects can be so bad the person can't tolerate it. So, uh, you know, they can almost feel worse or a different kind of bad from the whatever they're dealing with. And so um, when you're telling me, for example, how to deal with these these ticks or tremors that you're having, I, I can't tell you something that will stop those. The Honestly, I stopped uh, some okay. of the meds. Well, and that's that's what I'm saying is that we don't want you to play doctor by yourself to figure out, let me stop this one, let me try this one. Because, you know, there could also be uh, effects of taking a medication and stopping it all of a sudden, too, that can be harmful and create its own problems. So really, we, I would, what I would want for you is to have a relationship with a psychiatrist that's closer. Sometimes that's not possible. They could be hard to make appointments with. They could be very expensive. But, you know, your treatment right now is very important to figure out what is the balance that's going to work for you, both medication-wise and not just medication there's other types of treatment that from therapy to group therapy, other things that might be helpful as well. Again, especially with 
any kind of psychosis, generally the um, reaction is to just give a medication and that's it. But that's that's not really uh, the best treatment in general, but especially for certain individuals, because from what you're describing, I know right now you're not in that state that you were uh, when you were not feeling as well or having the psychotic symptoms, but you don't seem to be on the extreme end of if it's schizophrenia, you asked about diagnosis, and I'll, I can touch on that in a bit, but it doesn't seem like you have it in an extreme form. And so because of that, I wouldn't want your treatment to just be um, medication-based, and that's it. And even the medication could be a smaller part of that potentially. So I would want you to consider exploring what else you can do because as I was mentioning, so now this tying into your first question, I can't say for certain, you just told me a little bit about it. It could be schizophrenia, but schizophrenia usually has more going on. But as far as a late, uh, you know, usually we'll call what you're going through or what you experience a later onset of psychosis. Um, It usually starts in later adolescence. But as I mentioned, more often in men, it's even younger than in women. And so sometimes it can start later, like in the 40s, we might see an experience like yours as the first time. And as far as I know, they're not quite sure why women might have it potentially start later than men or not have anything until later um, than men. But, you know, might not be schizophrenia, might be some type of a psychotic disorder that I don't know which one I would give you a diagnosis of. But it seems like something is going on related to that. Some people have schizophrenia that has lots of different types of symptoms. I don't know if you've had... Did you have any other significant changes other than um, the you know these, the hearing voices and thinking you were getting news that other people didn't get? Did anything no. else change? No, not really. Nothing like in how your, your behavior, taking care of yourself, anything like that? Sometimes it was saying to me in in by my own body, by my own mouth and tongue. I was talking to myself, saying that, um, okay, uh, now is the time to jump. Now one more time, jump and say number one. Mm-hmm. Then I had to one more time jump and say number one, and then the rest was coming as. Now uh, we go. Uh, I I want you to do some exercise. Do some exercise. I was doing what type of exercise? The answer was that. What type of exercise? Again, I was telling myself, for example, this, 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 this exercise. Or uh, go uh, say hello to mom. Or go take a shower. Or things like that also was part of the experience. Okay. So it's kind of like a commanding hallucination telling you what you should do. Yes. And some of them was not good, actually. And that can happen sometimes. I mean, like when you say not good, like to hurt yourself or hurt someone else? No, no. I was going to say that exactly. Not not that type of being um, dangerous or jeopardizing anybody's life. Mm -hmm. It was kind of saying some inappropriate words to someone. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes people can even have, even in OCD, people can have these types of thoughts of hurting someone or someone hurting them, but it can also be in um, a psychotic type of experience. And so I could see how that was very, very um, painful and difficult to go through. And so we don't want you to have to go through that. 
So I think it does make sense that you're getting a tr- some treatment to not go there. But again, I'm concerned about the number of medications that you were placed on to just treat you like the a symptom or just like someone who has this you know situation going on. So as far as the diagnosis, it, it could be schizophrenia, but usually someone, they have more going on. Now, let me ask you something. Were you depressed around this time or did you have any kind of mood changes before you started to... No, during no. that time, when uh, when uh, no meds was started, mm-hmm. I was very good. I okay. was just not depressed, not, uh, not nothing. I was very good in, in mood-wise. I was kind of normal and mm-hmm. had a very nice mood. Okay. I don't mean like manic or something. Yeah. I mean just being all okay. right. Okay. Mood-wise. Let me ask you something. If you, a goal, like when you look at like your treatment goal, so like let's say you're trying to treat whatever it is you're dealing with, what would you like to see for yourself? Uh, I want to have just a nice mood. Okay. And be stable on that so that I can take decision for my life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this situation i can't okay um so yeah have a calm mood and then so to not have these psychotic experiences and have a calm mood basically yes okay yes. and now did it interfere with your life what's going on i don't know if you are working or what's happening but did... yes a lot okay a lot. so what happened because uh, since the time that it started um, it was it, it actually started about a year ago I said six months ago or so six months ago or so was the time that it became it started to become under control uh, about four or five months before that six months also the experience of psychotic um, experiences actually started um, I am sorry, I forgot what was your question. That's okay. I was, yeah, I was saying, how did it affect your life, like as far as work or school? Uh, and or, yeah. it, started, it affected my life so badly in a way that I couldn't go to work and mm. I lost actually uh, one job. Okay. Actually. So can you because, tell me what, what happened? Yeah, go ahead. What happened that made you not, where you, you couldn't get yourself to work or you couldn't? No, no, I was in a meeting, uh, we were in a meeting, and mm-hmm. the meeting was going on well. It was a big meeting, and uh, so many people were there. And I was just, uh, at the time of lunch, I was just uh, started calling uh, the name of my uh, boss mm-hmm. a little bit uh, loudly, uh, but very respectfully. Uh, and that made it... Uh, him uh, not wanting me continue working there. okay so they felt like something was off or something your behavior yes. was a little bit they even didn't yeah. tell me what was the reason but okay it was, it could was, could there be anything you don't remember or you didn't remember that you said or did or was it just saying because just saying his name a few times i don't know if you were yelling it or something but that doesn't seem uh-huh. like it wasn't, uh, no, I can't remember. Uh, it wasn't something like yelling or something, mm-hmm. but uh, they said it was kind of like a yelling. I, I, I said loudly, but they they called it yelling. Mm. 
but it's like somebody if, uh, for example if i say let's say his name is um, his name is jack for example mm-hmm. um starting saying jack 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 and several times i called him jack um, and he didn't respond and i was sure that he was hearing hmm. do you do you remember why what was happening for you that you were saying his he, name he was at the time of uh, it was at the time of lunch and i was calling him to tell him go to the other direction and get the, the lunch that was on the other side of the uh, table i didn't need to do that at all yeah i didn't need to do that but i did do you remember why you wanted him to go get the lunch at the other table? Uh, actually, it was just part of that experience, psychotic experience. Right. Because so, was there something like? Also, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And during that time, also, I was experiencing this uh, psychosis and mm-hmm. um, saying things to people that wasn't proper. Yeah. I know that. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I didn't know if it was like either you were trying to give him a direction or if you thought like something was wrong with the other lunch or whatever it was. But so it seems like you weren't, you didn't do anything that outrageous, but you were being a bit inappropriate or maybe you were saying things in a way that were a little bit off or didn't, you know, maybe they weren't sure what to make of it. But, um, but you're saying it was part of that experience that you were, you were having. So yeah, of course, we don't want it to interfere with your life in that way and for you to go through those things. The thing is that the, what you're experiencing, I wish I could say it's so simple and so clear that it's this and then they treat it with this and it's just going to go away. Um, yes, but this is something that I wanted to happen. I would like that for you too. And it's possible you find some medication that gives you that or some type of treatment that will give you that. I don't think it's going to be likely from having so many medications at the same time and I also don't think it will be without also getting some other help like therapy because also if you work with a therapist especially one who has some experience with psychosis they will help you also in monitoring this and understanding it better so maybe you can get better at knowing when it might be coming about so then you meet with a psychiatrist again to possibly increase or add a medication for that time let's just say so i would encourage you to do what for most uh, psychological issues we recommend therapy and medication together and in your case i would highly recommend that now some people when they think of schizophrenia they actually don't think therapy will help but it does seem like it does and i don't know even if you have schizophrenia or you're just dealing with some other psychotic uh, type of experience or issue but my, my recommendation would be for that. And that will also mean that it'll be better if you are, I, I don't know the, your situation, because I know you said you're about to go to Iran again, and you probably will need to be more in one place so you can get some type of ongoing treatment somewhere. Um, right. And even the going and coming, I don't know how stressful that is, but stress isn't good for anyone. But if you're dealing with anything like this, it can only make it worse and make it likely that you have more experiences or breaks. So if, if going back and forth adds a stress for you, that's something to consider. But for me, the, the ongoing treatment consistently with the same people will be very important. So if you see a psychiatrist here and then you go to Iran and then they take you to another psychiatrist there and then they're going to say, oh, no, switch those meds and take these meds, 
that's not going to be good for you because obviously just that is not going to be good. But also to see what's going to work for you, you're going to have to try something for a little bit of time to see how it's going for you. Then potentially that same doctor or doctors, if you're working with multiple people, might make some changes and try something else. Um, but we don't want different people meeting with them and you're going to get different opinions from them and they're going to give you different treatments and that's not going to be good for you. So I would also encourage you to find a way to get some kind of consistent care from the same people. Okay. Do you think that if I meet with the psychiatrist uh, in a couple of days and uh, take their advice, if they say, uh, okay, uh, they want to give me they change actually my meds and give their own meds mm-hmm. to me. Uh, and uh, when I go to Iran also be under, uh, still uh, under this and see how it works for me. Uh, if it didn't work, then I find another one in there uh, to be yeah. under there. Dear care, what yeah. do you think? Well, I mean, it's it's tough for me to say that. How long are you going to be in Iran? Uh, I don't know, actually. Mm-hmm. I um, Because I'm not feeling well, I thought I want to go there and stay there until I get the right treatment. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, you know, this is where I can understand that. And possibly if you're there and family takes care of you, at least maybe there's less stress in some ways of your life. But... Um, you know, you're asking me a question. I can understand wanting to know what to do, but I, I don't know if you go to this doctor here, and then if you tell me you can't see that doctor again for three months or four months, it, it makes it hard for that person to monitor you and take care of you. You know, so if you let's say you go to Iran and you're having some side effects, I can call them. You actually. can. It depends. Yeah. What, what country are you in right now? Uh, I am currently here. In the United yeah. States. Yeah. Okay. Um, you pro- possibly could, but you know, it does make your treatment obviously difficult to manage when you're several thousand miles away. And so po- you could yeah. do that. I would ask them, you know, I'm sure you'll tell them, let the psychiatrist know all of this information. Maybe they already know, but I'm flying to Iran tomorrow. I don't know exactly how long, you know, I, I would talk with them and get a lot of um, information, but it-, it could put them in a different difficult situation if you're leaving the next day to prescribe you medication when they know they can monitor you uh, closely but I'll let them make that decision for me what what would be important is that you get some consistent care from the same place it could be in Iran I think your last experience where they put you on so many different medications was not a good one and that does sound concerning to me if they put you on so many medications all at once um so I would hope tomorrow or in a few days, sorry, when you go see that doctor here in the United States, see what they say and even hear their recommendations of what, what to do about going and coming. Um, and maybe, yeah, you can take the medication. This also will be a phone appointment. Okay. Well, I mean, that's the, the phone or video? They said phone. Okay. Well, I mean, I think video can be a little bit better in some ways. So they they actually yeah. get to physically or visually see you. Um, but uh, yeah, still, I would get that that uh, treatment from them and see what they tell you and and help them make a decision. Because I don't want to tell you to not take their medication or take their medication or take their treatment mm-hmm. or not. I'm just concerned about you going and coming and getting treatment from 
multiple different people because you know, I feel like you're going to see one person, they say, take this. And then you go to the other one, like, oh, why are you taking that? Take this. And then they, you know, and it's just going to be this process of switching you on different medications, which itself is going to be, uh, you know, hurtful to you. So um, you're going to need some consistency in your treatment, whatever that is and whatever that looks like. So obviously my bias is that if you're seeing someone here um, to stay here and see them or, you know, I don't know you know, the, the doctors there and what your experience there, you said that last one wasn't good. So that concerns me. If that's the type of treatment you're getting when you're there, um, that doesn't sound very good. So I would see this person here, uh, see what they say, explain your whole situation to them. Um, and you have to make the best decision for you when your family gets involved too. I, you know, I know um, if at times you're feeling more psychotic, it can be hard for you to make good decisions for yourself. So I don't know what state you're you're going to be in when you see them, but I hope you'll make a decision that you feel okay with whatever it is. But for me, the consistency is very important because this back and forth is going to really be difficult. And I don't want you to make the decisions of stopping to take a medication, uh, you know, because of the side effects. You really want to work with someone. The, the psychiatrist themselves to tell you what to do with what you're experiencing. Doctor, uh, I wanted to see if uh, you recommend any psychiatrist. I, I don't, and I wouldn't say, you know, I don't say names on the air, um, but I don't know someone that I feel I could recommend um, to you. If you have an appointment, I would encourage you to go to that person because I don't know. Uh, who I could give you a, a recommendation for. Or uh, a time that uh, after our, our call, I call the office and ask. Uh, sure. Uh, you can do that. You know, if you want, even right now when we um, get off, we're, we should go to commercial break now and we can wrap up and and just don't hang up and I'll, I'll uh, speak to you on, on the phone. Okay. 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 Thank you. All right. Okay. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, with the previous caller, appreciate her calling in, sharing her story, and and uh, there is this feeling of always wanting to to help more, but feeling that you can be limited in how much you can help, and that's definitely how I felt while while talking to her. And this points to, in general, a feeling we can have of helping others, but I'm also thinking of just this understanding of how complex. Uh, we are as human beings and our our brains and mental health and the ways we function, how it's so complicated that we still, as much as we've learned and understood and even understanding about the brain and mental illness and mental experiences, we still know so little. And there were hopes just a few decades ago with the advent of new medications and with the advent of brain imaging that we were going to figure out the brain so quickly and understand all the illnesses and come up with all the treatments um, to, to really get rid of or essentially get rid of mental illnesses so, or so much of mental illness. And we've seen that we've fallen way short of that because it appears the problem was much bigger and more, much more complicated than we could have imagined. And so when we try to understand schizophrenia or a science, uh, psychotic experience, we find that it's way more complicated than we could imagine. And it's not just one thing that's going on, and it's not even just one thing that people are experiencing it, even if we 
put them all under the umbrella of a psychotic experience. It's so many different types of things. Um, I know when I was an undergrad and, and still there's some talk about when it comes to something like schizophrenia, the dopamine, it's too much dopamine. Um, but it's much more than that. It could be too much dopamine in some parts, too little in other parts, but a bunch of other things too. It's not just dopamine. And we're often looking for this um, thing, this problem and have having one cause. And then if we figure that out, we can fix it. And that would be nice. Even as I said with her, I would hope there's some way I could give her an answer that a psychiatrist can give her an answer that would be this solution that then eliminates the problem from her life completely but that likely won't be the case and i i wish her the best and wish her well and it might be something that has to be monitored at some level or will take some time to figure out a balance that works for her and that she can function in a way that feels good both in not experiencing the psychotic symptoms that are especially causing her pain and discomfort and even dysfunction as she mentioned in her work um, but then also the side effects of any medication that she's on not uh, having horrible impacts either, and those being differ, difficult to tolerate as well, um, while also seeing other types of treatments or things that might be helpful for her. So I, I do wish her the best in that, but it is a reminder of this complexity or that even when we something functions in a certain way, it can be such a delicate balance of, of having that work. And going back to that notion of schizophrenia, dopamine, um, I still hear it to this day, clients saying it, people saying it, that mental illness, uh, it's a chemical imbalance. And, and this um, mindset was very much, uh, seemed to be what people believed to be the truth, but also pushed at some level by pharmaceutical companies because there is this notion, okay, oh, you're not feeling well, there's a chemical imbalance, we have the chemical or we put it into your brain, you're going to feel good, you're not going to be depressed or you're not going to be anxious or you're not going to experience psychosis. It's a chemical imbalance. And so we're going to fix that imbalance to balance it out. Um, in some ways, this you know, this notion, it doesn't have to be a chemical imbalance, but there's something in that that people will say, well, then it's not the person's fault. So if it's a chemical imbalance, it's not the person's fault. And so I like that part because we don't want to blame people for having an illness or for suffering in some way, just like if someone has uh, cancer, we don't blame them, or but... But it doesn't mean it's just a chemical imbalance that they had cancer. It's something so simple either. But I do like that part that it does create this notion not to blame the person, blame the person who's suffering. Um, unfortunately, also does at times contribute to this uh, stigma attached to mental illness. Like, oh, they're imbalanced. They're so off and they're so not normal and weird. So I don't like that part of it. And of course, the the bigger part of looking at it is the reality that that's not really what's going on. We can't just call it a chemical imbalance how um, even the medications how we think they work isn't often how they work things like uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors SSRIs for depression it, it seems like we don't quite know what they're doing we thought we knew it was just about serotonin but it seems like there's more going on than just that and so we like these simplification of things serotonin is the happy molecule you know oxytocin is the bonding molecule dopamine is the pleasure type of or really it's really the seeking but making it into one thing um, but it's not that it's not just more serotonin more happy less serotonin unhappy it's much more complex than that so the chemical imbalance type of theory or mindset is one that 
you've probably heard it for so long, and as I said, you still will hear it, that it could be difficult for us collectively to unlearn that. But it is something that it, it, we can be aware of, is that it sounds like it makes sense, or we think it makes sense, but it's not quite there. And so if it was that simple, we likely would have an easier time treating so much of uh, the mental illness and mental anguish that people experience. And also a last note about... Um, this idea of normal or how you should be. This is a part of psychology, psychiatry, the, the field of mental health that has been a very negative side of, of thinking that there is one kind of normal or coming up with a, a normal. And unfortunately, because of that pathologizing and stigmatizing almost everyone or most people, because really no one is normal in that way or what that even means is very much up to interpretation and changes based on a variety of factors that have nothing to do with some type of pure, healthy uh, way of being that's come down from above that is how we all are supposed to be, but we judge and stigmatize people for their experiences because we think it's not what they should be. And so that's also something that we want to be mindful of. I think a very important thing to look at when we're looking at mental illness even and we're trying to diagnose it is something that generally is in the criteria of how we diagnose mental illness is that the person has to be suffering subjectively or it's affecting their functioning in some way. But for us to come in and say, no, you shouldn't be that way, you should be this way, uh, that tends to be very, very problematic and leads to lots of issues. But if someone says, I'm in pain, that's that's the real thing that we can deal with and affect. So again, this chemical imbalance notion uh, comes from this mindset that that's all that is happening in the brain is this, this imbalance leads to the illness. We fix the chemical imbalance. We fix the illness. But it's much more complicated than that. And so our caller is experiencing what so many people can experience when they are trying to try some psychiatric medications. And there's a lot of guess and check and trying this and trying that. Um, doesn't mean that it doesn't help lots of people. I, I don't want to look at it as the medications are all bad, but it's the, the challenge can be there of finding the right medication, and even if medication is the right type of treatment for you. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, for the last segment, changing gears a bit from the previous uh, segments to another one of these types of lessons that I'm learning or lessons that I've learned over these years. Um, and so this one's called Comedians Aren't Funny. And um, I think they are very funny. But the point is that they aren't only funny. And so that's the title. Comedians Aren't Funny. And you maybe have noticed I, I really enjoy stand-up comedy. And um, can, if I think a comedian's funny, I laugh a lot and loud. And if I'm with my brother power home I might even push him I'm laughing so hard so I really actually enjoy uh, seeing comedians stand-up comedy uh, but the reason why I thought of this is how we tend to not give one another the space to be full human beings or experience and express a full range of being and you see this with comedians a lot in a variety of ways one is they might even tell you that people see them and think well tell me a joke or um, you know, be funny for me, right? So they see them as the funny person, almost like a clown kind of feeling, like 
make me laugh. That's your function. That's your purpose. That's what you do. Um, and even in a similar vein, you might have seen, and I've seen it almost every time a comedian, you know, they're doing their set, they're telling their jokes, and then they might get to a point where they're sharing something personal or something sad. You know, they might say, oh, you know, my father died from cancer. And they're being serious. They're sharing this painful thing, and it is sad. But you'll almost always hear some members in the audience laughing. And it's because they can't take this person seriously, or in their head they can't take them seriously. So they hear this thing, and also probably makes them feel a bit uncomfortable. And so then they laugh because like, oh, this must be a funny, it must be a joke somehow. Um, kind of missing that the person's actually kind of changing the mood and wants to share this personal thing. And maybe there's some humor in it. They're going to get to something. But in that initial part where they're sharing the sad part, the, the audience and some people will have this experience of not being able to see that this is now sad. The funny guy or the funny girl, it's not just being funny. They're sharing something painful and sad. And... We also see there's this stereotype at times, there's notion of de- comedians being depressed or having depression. Um, I think, of course, any group of people is going to have a variety of mental experiences. I do think there can be this tendency for comedians to have more of this, and sometimes uh, the depression or the sadness is what actually lends them to make light of things, find humor in things, or often you'll hear Um, comedians share that when they were younger that was a way that they either got attention or they made someone in their life happy or they diffused situations so they likely are or they're more likely to have used humor as a defense mechanism and then took it on as a career all of these things of course are generalizations you're going to see a whole range of comedians with different experiences Um, but we do see that often things like drug use and abuse and, and suicide and depression do seem to be higher. I don't have statistics on that, but I have seen many instances of that that can make that possibly uh, have some validity to it. Um, And I could get that. Again, as I was saying, they maybe are looking for the brightness and the darkness uh, or looking for that light or that's their way of avoiding their own pain or they've learned how to deal with their pain through that. But the part I'm focusing on here is not doing a mental health analysis of comedians but how we respond to one another that if you see someone and they're the funny person they're a comedian to keep in mind that they are more than that they are a full human being with a full range of emotions and the full range of emotional experience and they don't only say funny things and they don't always want to be funny and this extends to everyone in general not just someone who has a career that might seem like a specific type of emotion or experience like a comedian is about being funny all of us can treat each other in a way that makes it seem like we're only one thing or we're limited to some things or that we're never some type of a way and I think this is very very bad for us and for them now there is a two-way street here so if we're looking at the comedians they've probably found a way that by being funny by finding the light in things by cracking the joke it helps them survive in a way. We all come up with a strategy to survive through our childhood and, and to make it emotionally through our lives. So they've probably chosen that at some way. Like, I like being the funny person or that helps me survive. But just like all of us, we come up with a strat- strategy that works, so to speak, but it also limits us. So if I'm the always always nice person, 
well, that's limited to me not sticking up for myself, not asking for what I want. If I'm the always funny person, then I can't be serious or I'm not allowed to be sad or to express those sides or express other feelings or fill in the blank, whatever it is that's become your type of strategy, which sometimes we think of as personality, but sometimes what we think of as personality is really this way that we've functioned or we've learned to function that makes it harder for us to be flexible and express other things. So if I'm the always funny person, then I have a hard time being serious. It's worked for me. And I think that's my personality, but it could be that I'm uncomfortable being serious or being sad or expressing certain things. If you're that nice guy, you might be uncomfortable being angry or upset, or you think people won't like you, or you're afraid of your anger or their anger or a variety of things that you might think it's just your personality, but often it's ways that we've limited ourselves in who we're being and, and what we express. So Going back to the comedian, yes, of course, they're they're telling jokes and being funny and doing things on stage, and maybe that's how they make their living and even become very famous. So obviously, they've chosen this way of being at some level. And so we're not responsible for how people are being, but we are responsible for our way of responding to one another. And so I say this so we keep that in mind, because you, you see it, people, you know, they see a comedian on stage or if they see them in person and all of a sudden they already are smiling and laughing and they're just waiting to laugh and only can see them in this way. And so with them, I think it's a, it's more black and white that we can see them that way to see them in other ways, but keep it in mind for others. But when you see someone who's a, a comedian, be aware that they can, especially when they're not on the job, like they just might want to be a person and they might not want to be funny. And they also have low energy and this kind of energy and they don't want to be in a funny mood and to give them that space. And even if it's not a comedian, sometimes you have someone in your life that's very funny and tells a lot of jokes, but to not always feel like they have to to be on, so to speak, and to be ready to entertain you or to make you laugh. Maybe they're sad or they're down, or even be aware of that, that they might be more likely to cover being sad or down with being funny and, and try to make you laugh or try to cheer you up. And maybe something more is going on. So they're responsible to share, of course, what they will and won't share with you. But you're responsible for how you respond to them or the space you create for them. Can the funny person in your life be sad and share a story that's not funny? Can you have an interaction with them or, a, you know, let's say you go to lunch with them and maybe they're not in that mood to make you laugh. And again, it's not just about funny and not funny and comedians, other people in your life. If you know someone and you've never seen them sad, don't think, okay, that means they never get sad. This is just a perpetually happy person. It probably means they're not showing you their sadness or their pain. There is more to them than just the thing you have seen. None of us is just one part of the human experience. We can experience everything. So be aware that whoever you interact with, even if you haven't seen them express this whole range of human experiences and ways of being, it doesn't mean that they aren't within them and they don't want to come out and be aware of how am I either creating the space or not giving them that space. You'll see this in families where people take on certain roles where it's like this person is, if they're the people pleaser, for example, if they get angry, people might get surprised. What, what, do you, what do you mean? Like you're getting angry. You never get angry. Or you hear stories where people say, I never saw my father cry before. And then they cried and it was shocking for me. Um, and, you know, that brings up a whole bunch of things related to expressing feelings, what's okay and not okay, what's okay for a man to express. But it also could show that person, we never got to see the full side of them. 
they of course experienced sadness, but they never expressed it until this moment where whatever it was overwhelmed them with feelings of sadness and they could not hold it in anymore. But it doesn't mean they weren't very sad until that moment or that day. And maybe likely they expressed it in other ways like anger or holding it in or uh, dealing with it in their, you know, their preferred way, whatever was quote unquote their personality of dealing with it. But there was much more person there that was being covered by this way of being or this mask. The mask covers something. And what's there is that full humanity or what that who that person is. And so also take this to look at yourself. What are my ways of being that are limiting? What are the experiences that I don't express? What are the things that I think I should never feel or always feel? Or when I see someone, you know, you hear things like, oh, no one wants someone to make them feel down. So don't share negative news or negative feelings. You hear that a lot in a more general sense, not just that individuals experience it, but we have this notion that we should always be happy because people want us to be that way and that makes them feel better. Well, that means we're being incomplete in who we are and we're not being genuine and authentic if we hold those things back. So what's the mask that I wear? If I pay attention, what might be the masks of the people I interact with? What might they cover because they think they're not supposed to show it? And being aware that sometimes we don't want them to show it. It is more comfortable for us if they don't get sad or they never get mad at us. But what are we taking away from them and what are we taking away from our relationship with them when they don't have that space to be sad or be upset? And ultimately, when it comes to being a parent, this is where you have this huge task of, am I creating the space for my child to experience all the range of feelings and experiences they have? Or am I pushing them towards and away from certain things? I want them to be happy and not be sad. I want them to be comfortable and easygoing with things and not get mad. So you might push them away, like, oh, no, you're not upset about this, or no, you're, that doesn't make you, you're not crying, you don't, boys don't cry, or little kids cry, or whatever we say to them to tell them to stop crying. Is that really helping them be more human, or are we trying to make them what we want them to be because that makes us feel good? And giving them that space as hard as it is to be mad at us, to be upset, to feel sad, even if that's more inconvenient, it's easier, yes. What's more pleasant, someone smiling or someone crying? Of course, it's easier when someone is smiling. But what's more real, someone who has to always smile or someone who's allowed to be sad? The one who can feel both things. And we want to give them that space to experience both things. So coming back to to how I started, that comedians aren't funny. The point there is not that they aren't funny sometimes, but they also aren't funny. They also are a whole range of things, a whole uh, scope of being human. And each one of us have that same thing where we're not just however we maybe have been or have shown up in the world. We have a whole wide range of experiences that we can have. And one, we want to make sure we're experiencing that. But also two, very importantly, we want to give the space to everyone to be more than just the thing that maybe they've shown us so far or the way we perceive them. Every human being is a full human being, has a whole range of experiences, and we want to give each other that space to be that. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farhuda Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azati. Mm-hmm.